Hi everyone, this is Jalisha from Sharebird. Thanks for being a loyal listener of our podcast. We're excited to announce that we just launched Sharebird Premium, a content library of proven playbooks, case studies, templates, and lessons learned used by product marketing leaders at the fastest growing companies, including many of who have been guests on this show. Start critical projects off right and avoid costly mistakes with Sharebird Premium. Visit sharebird.com playbooks to get access. You're losing 30% of your deals to competitors. Not cool. That competitive revenue gap is costing your business millions of dollars. So how do you tip the scale in your favor? Clue's competitive enablement platform makes it simple for product marketers and compete pros to give their revenue teams the exact right intel at the exact right time. Positioning, messaging, objection handling, and FUD. Clue shares real-time competitive insights in the places your reps already live and makes it easy for them to contribute insights from the field. Welcome back to season five of the Product Marketing Experts podcast. I'm so excited to have you, Georgina. So excited to speak with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led Claire and you to starting Forget the Funnel? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. It's been long in the coming and I'm glad that we're finally getting to do this together. So marketing, long background in marketing, probably 20 some odd years. And I want to say around 2010, 2011, I discovered as a service business model and, you know, startups and tech. And I was like, holy shit, finally, my people who understand that business isn't all just about acquisition and it's not just about getting the sale, but post-acquisition is super, super valuable. And finally, these are the people that understand that marketing does not end at acquisition. And so from that moment on, I was like, I'm all in. I have stayed very focused predominantly in B2B SaaS for the last, you know, 13-ish years. And I did some consulting and then I was in-house for a number of years. And when I left my in-house role, I got very quickly inundated with an influx in demand of people wanting to either bring me into a full-time role or work with me in a consulting capacity because at the time, and it's still somewhat true today, it's not a lot of people who could say they've been working in the SaaS industry for that amount of time. So I always said, I'm like senior in a very young industry. And around that time is when I synced up with Claire Sellentrop, who was in a similar situation to me working with Calendly. And so her and I both left our in-house roles, both sort of went into this independent consulting businesses around the same time. And her and I synced up and we launched a top series together called Forget the Funnel. It was basically dedicated to marketers inside of SaaS companies and tech companies dealing with all the things that we do. And um, that workshop series basically bubbled into opportunities to work with companies together and this sort of melding of the ways that we were working with companies, Claire predominantly on the customer research and jobs to be done and, you know, product adoption and things like that. And more on the sort of higher level operational strategizing team building sort of side of things. And so we sort of melded our two ways of working together. We ended up working with a few companies and clients together and we sort of never looked back. And then we got somewhat kind of like business married and we merged our consultancies and forget the funnel turned into not just being a workshop series, but also into a full-fledged consultancy. 
That's incredible. I love the genesis of your consultancy. And you've also turned Forget the Funnel into a book. And I think it encapsulates a lot of the concepts you just mentioned. But can you talk a little bit about the the book that Claire and yourself just released? Yes. So it is really the step-by-step very practical guide to the framework that we developed and dubbed customer-led growth, partially in response to the product-led and product-led growth sort of, you know, push and help that the juxtaposition of the two is very important. But really it's our process for conducting useful customer research and being able to turn that research into insight that teams can actually operationalize and act on and measure and continue to iterate on in a product-led way in many cases. Sometimes it's not product-led, but we let the customers and the business sort of decide that versus deciding that, you know, we're going to go PLG, even though we've got, you know, customers that that might not work with. The mo of customer-led growth is really figuring out what type of experience is going to be most effective for your best customers and then leaning into that, whether it be product-led or sales-led or anything else. For sure. And the go-to-market motion has changed quite a lot over the years, right? From, I would say the genesis has been marketing-led, sales-led, product-led, and customer-led, right? Can you talk a little bit about how you think about some of the differences between customer-led and product-led or any of the other recent kind of iterations? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that we called it that at the time, but when I was in-house and leading marketing at Unbounce, actually, a a marketing platform, it was really a marketing-led type of company. I think the sort of definition of these led sort of frameworks, the one that I sort of resonated with the most was Lenny Rachitsky's when he was like, where's the most amount of growth sort of coming from being driven, which sort of function of the business is driving the most amount of growth. And I sort of stick with that. And that's my way of thinking about it. If I think about my role in-house, a lot of it was very marketing led because it was very heavy on the inbound. It was very heavy on like thought leadership and education in the market and then being there when customers made the decision to adopt a platform like ours. And there's a couple of examples of companies who have done that really, really well, especially when you're in the category creation space. I mean, there's the de facto sort of example of like HubSpot when they were, you know, sort of bringing inbound marketing to to market. There was a lot of education there. And if you're in a category creation space, you're in the marketing business. It's marketing-led growth. But for the majority of companies, rather than sort of indexing towards marketing or product or sales or community, there's community-led growth as well, right? Customer-led growth really aims to uncover which is the most effective to use and in what context, because the majority of the time it's more than one. And so depending on the types of customers either you're having success with today and you wanting to basically lean into a more product-led environment, but strategies basically versus companies who may be thinking about, we want to move a little bit more up market. Our customers are getting a little bit more complex. They're buying cycles. There's more people involved. Then they probably need to start thinking about more product-led sales and bringing in a higher touch. And so to just say we're a product-led company, I don't think anybody claims that they're only sales-led. I haven't heard that yet, but Instead of just sort of deciding we're going to be product-led and having that be your sort of larger strategy, we believe that we should be really learning from our best customers, learning, you know, what 
was it that happened when they were sort of out in the world? And what was that trigger moment that led them to seeking out a solution like yours? And then once they discovered you, what was it about you and your offering that really convinced them that they should give it a shot? And then once they tried the product, what was it that brought them to value very, very quickly? And how did they sort of reach value realization through like product activation and engagement? And then furthermore, after they reached value realization with your product, how did they evolve and grow from that? And they're continuing to be successful. So if you can sort of look at those customers and learn from them about what was that experience like, what was the value that they sort of achieved, and you can kind of reverse engineer their experience, so to speak, and figure out what is the most appropriate experience to give them at what time in their sort of customer experience, then you're leveraging marketing-led approaches, you're leveraging product-led approaches, sales-led, community probably. There's all kinds of opportunities to lay strategies on top of that, but really at the base of all of it, we're in the customer business, all of us. And so learning from them and rather than guessing, but really learning from our best customers and figuring out how do we create a better experience and sort of, you know, clone these amazing customers, we can sort of create experiences that bring more of them into the fold and help them get value from our product. I love that focus on the customer. It all has to start and end with the customer at the end of the day, right? And despite the whatever lead framework that you use. Right. And, and it probably, hopefully should be many of them, but it, it has to, at the end of the day, tie back to the customer. I want to jump back to the beginning of that kind of experience journey that you were referencing and really the beginning of your book as well. It also really starts with research and learning from your customers, as you mentioned. Yeah. So where do you recommend even starting with customer research? I think it's a critical skill for a lot of product marketers and just businesses overall, right? But mm -hmm. who do you even identify who to reach out to? Yeah. So there's a couple of factors to take into account when you start your research and it's pretty basic. I mean, it's going to stand to reason that you want to be learning from your customers who are paying for your product, right? So they have a very high willingness to pay. They're happy with your product as it exists today. So, you know, they're successful customers. And then the other factor that is important to consider as well is that they have not been around so long that they forget what life was like before. And this is sort of an interesting lens to bring in because, you know, sometimes some of the objections that uh, research gets when, when somebody proposes, oh, we should do customer research, is that, you know, the world in which these people, these customers made a decision might be different than today. And so a lot of things have changed. I mean, nobody will argue that the last, you know, three to five years have been wildly different. Even the past year has changed how people make purchase decisions. And so if you can learn from your customers who experienced the pain that you solve and made that decision and reached value with your product within the last Generally, we say like three to six months. Sometimes you could go as long as nine, but generally you're looking for those customers that are a little bit newer because again, recency is important and remembering what life was like before is important. You don't want customers, you know, telling you what you want to hear or filling in the blanks in ways that might not be as useful. So recency is the other thing. So that's where you sort of start from in learning from those customers. Again, it's important to remember the segment of customers that you choose to learn from really should be representative of your best customers because they're the ones that you know, should be prioritized. By the way, that's not me saying that doing exit interviews aren't important. Of course, that type of research is very, very important. It's just not what we're solving for with this 
specific sort of framework. This is what we're trying to figure out. What does good look like versus how do we fix what's wrong, which is, you know, and there's market research and audience research and all types of, you know, competitive research, all kinds of other research that should complement this. But at the root of it really is how do we know what good looks like? How do we know what good should look like for our customers? And so our best customers are the best place to go for that. Absolutely. And I know anytime I've started this type of research within an organization, there's generally speaking, some objections that Mm -hmm. are encountered, right? And I imagine you've probably faced this way more than even I have, but maybe objections around timing or costs or just personal ownership even of separate departments. So curious about, you know, maybe some of the objections you've encountered and, and how you've overcome them to even begin some of this research. Yeah, there's many. I mean, there's it's probably endless. And there's always new ones that sort of surprise me. So it's definitely different, I would say, for somebody in a position like I am, where I'm an outsider. And so generally companies are coming to me because they're pretty bought in on this idea that they need to be learning from their customers. So the types of objections that I would encounter with companies would be quite different if you were in-house. There's a different scenario there. So I can tell you some that I've heard over the years that probably span both of those scenarios, but research being costly, I mean, that's kind of an easy one. If you just take the example of product onboarding, you just have to do the math, right? On if you could improve your trial to paid or your free to paid conversion rate by 10%, 20%, 50%, double it, what would that be worth to the business? And this type of research absolutely impacts those conversion rates. And therefore, the sort of math that needs to be done on the research tends to get pretty straightforward. And you could even do some low lift research to get a directional improvement in terms of how you would tackle onboarding, just as an example, and do even just a first version of how you would improve your product onboarding and basically figure out the math on like, if we could roll this out to and run it as a test, basically to a smaller cohort, like maybe 25% of your signups, then you can do the math on what the larger impact would be to the rest of the org, especially if you started to like lean in and run some interviews, God forbid, and actually, you know, start to optimize the onboarding in even more significant ways. The math is quite straightforward to do. The objection around ownership is real for sure. I have worked with a lot of companies where customer research is really sort of, I don't want to say owned, but owned by product. And that happens a lot. Marketing can sometimes struggle to, you know, they end up feeling like they've got a bandwagon a little bit on existing research, which is okay as well. Like you can leverage existing research. Again, the recency is important. What you're looking for in the research is important as long as it's well-conducted research, then you can often pull from existing research that exists. So I'm definitely not saying throw out the baby with the bathwater. You can get glean a ton of insight from existing research. But generally what I have found is that the research that exists, especially if it happens inside of the product team, is very specific. The product team was looking to learn something very specific about a very specific part of the product for a very specific end goal in terms of designing the product experience versus what we're really trying to learn from in this scenario is what was it that provided and delivered value to our customers? And moreover, how do our customers describe that value? 
How do they say that value was delivered for them? And how did it address their need that they came through the front door? Like connecting of those dots aren't often connected with existing research. And so oftentimes bringing in a new customer, a new research project like this is needed, but it should be supplemented and complemented and existing research should be dug into first. So I would definitely say figure out what you're working with and then figure out what are the knowledge gaps that you need filling through with another research project. And it probably doesn't need to be super wide in scope. You can do a lot with surveys. Truthfully, you can get a ton done with surveys more than most people think, not traditional types of surveys, very qualitative surveys, but yeah. So the ownership piece is one for sure. The sort of analysis paralysis is another thing. We already know what we should be doing to grow and adding more information to the mix is just going to confuse things. And it has the possibility of confusing teams and providing more information that then can be acted upon. So that's another thing that I've heard as well. And my response to that is good research would never do that. Well-conducted, well-thought-out research will actually do a ton to eliminate a lot of options and help prioritize and zoom in on really big opportunities. So generally, if research is done well, then it will address that. The time investment piece is another one as well, which I mean, there's the resources that I talked about by like doing the math, but also the time to learnings. You can be iterative with this type of research. You don't have to launch into running a hundred customer interviews. There is a crawl, walk, run version of this type of research. And so that's what I would do, but that's so you're making sure that you've got wins and you're getting learnings over time versus this big buildup over six months where everybody's sort of just waiting for this research project to sort of hit the ground. Being iterative on it is really, really important and doing the communicating and advocating on behalf of the research and bringing it back to the team. That's sort of the name of the game there. Other objections, I mean, there's lots, but those are probably the big ones for sure. Actually, one more that I will say, and this would happen with earlier stage companies, is we don't need to do customer research. We know our customers because we are our customers. And that happens earlier, right? And I'm sure you've experienced this as well with founders who had the problem. And they decided, you know what, I'm in this situation and I'm going to build the solution to this. And so they build a software product around a problem that they've experienced themselves. And that's fantastic. And it's fantastic that that founder has that knowledge. But as the team grows, as customers evolve, as the product itself evolves, even if the founder stays super, super close to the product and the customer at a certain point, it has to get outside of that founder's head. It has to get into the heads of everybody else who's building these experiences. It's not scalable otherwise, but also the changes in the market and we've seen happen over the past few years has changed the way people make decisions. And so there's that as well. So the product evolves, the customers evolve and the team evolves. And therefore that all warrants research being done continuously, right? Year after year, probably biannually at the very minimum, continuously in the ideal. Yeah, completely agree. And honestly, I think that's one of the exciting things about, of course, your book, but also just frankly, the work that we do in product marketing day in and day out. And the fact yeah. that we continuously can update these insights and help kind of direct and help strategize with the business to a large degree. Oh, yes. That's the coolest part. I, I totally agree. And especially today in kind of the, this mantra, I guess, so to speak, that's kind of come over marketing of do more with less, mm. which... I don't love, but pushing that to the side for a second, I'm curious about how you've taken 
this crawl, walk, run approach and learning these insights, what survey or interview methods that you've seen that work best? And I'm sure it's not just one. I'm sure there's different ones that work better in different approaches, but maybe what are some of the questions that you like to ask as well? Yeah. I mean, it really depends on what the objective of the research is. So a very, very common one, especially as I've mentioned a couple of times on the past few years, very common one is that a lot of companies are recognizing that their positioning is just off and that the messaging that they're using just isn't resonating anymore. And I'm talking brass tax messaging, like the homepage, just like how we talk about our product in the market is not like, we're not putting our best foot forward. A lot of companies have experienced that. I mean, a lot of companies we're experiencing that maybe, you know, unbeknownst to them a little bit more than now, but it's very obvious now that like, no, the market has shifted. Things have changed. Our customer has evolved. And so we know that we could be doing a better job of meeting our customers where they are. So if it's really rooted, if what you're hoping the research is going to help you with is rooted in that, right? Like figuring out what is our most advantageous messaging and positioning for these ideal customers, then the research truthfully is, I don't want to say it's straightforward, but it can be pretty straightforward. We rely on the jobs to be done framework for this, solving that type of challenge and opportunity, I'll say. And so we really do look to try to understand what it was the job that our customers were trying to accomplish. We try to get as close as possible to that pain and really understanding, you know, what led to them seeking out a solution. What solutions are they firing in order to hire ours? Really understanding their anxieties, the objections, deal breakers that are going through their mind as they're sort of evaluating opportunities or, or evaluating solutions basically in the market. And eventually when they get into hours and what are they comparing us to? What or products are they literally offboarding as they're trying to onboard into ours? What does that look like? Sort of trying to get it as close as possible to that understanding of where the solution and the value sort of meet. On the other hand, your objective is more around product onboarding and activation. What features should we be showing to our customers in what order once they get into the product? And you're really solving for, we got a lot of signups, but our signups are not converting into paying customers. Then we'd take a slightly different angle where we're leaning a little bit more into what are the specific product attributes that are delivering value and how can we articulate those and surface those and then what would be the hierarchy. They're very related, those two projects. There's a lot of overlap between the two, but it's slightly different. And then there's another scenario too, where you might be in a situation where you're losing a lot of customers. And that's a little bit different as well, where you would want to be learning from customers who are successfully, you know, they would never let you go. You'd have to pry it from their cold, dead hands kind of customers and really learning from them. Like, what is it that is so valuable over time? What is it that keeps them getting continued value? How would we potentially expand on that value for our customers, then that's a slightly different type of objective. But you can do relatively similar type of research. Again, jobs to be done is super valuable in all of those scenarios. So the crawl, walk, run, <laughs> to get back to your actual question, depending on how many customers that you have, what we sometimes like to do if we're in a scenario where we're working with a company that's got you know many, many customers, tens of thousands of customers, then we would definitely start with qualitative surveys. And that helps us narrow down basically to figure out like of all of these customers that are happily paying for our product today, is there a subset of those customers that we are particularly well-positioned 
for that we would benefit from leaning into a little bit more and then basically leaning into, you know, identifying those, what those segments are and then prioritizing them and basically going into to one, a second and a third. That happens quite a lot, actually, where we would identify two or three or even four sometimes customer jobs within a customer base and surveys, qualitative So like open text, I'm not talking about, you know, multiple choice type of surveys here, but those types of surveys can go a long, long way to helping us identify what those groups of customers might be. And then we can have a conversation internally on like, is there a group of those customers where we're like, cool, they're getting value, but let's not solve for them. And then are there other groups of customers where we're like, these customers represent a very urgent need, especially now with the market as it is today, they're experiencing a real pain. And by segmenting that group of customers, we can get a pretty accurate picture of like, where are they out in the world experiencing this problem? What are the solutions that they're currently struggling with? What are their watering holes? Where do they hang out? What's the language that they use? How do they describe this pain? We can get really close to them. And again, we can do that even with just qualitative surveys. Now, obviously, once we've done those broad surveys, identify those, you know, couple groups of customers that we would want to prioritize, then the next thing that we would definitely want to do is interviews. So we would use surveys sort of to get a, a high level view and get the directional sort of groupings for those customers. With some groups of customers where you can get a lot of data, there's other groups of customers where you'll get very slim and you'll be like, okay, here's the groups, but we don't actually know that much about them. Like my favorite ones to pick on are like developers. Good luck getting like deep information from a developer, unless you actually get, can get them on a call. So it depends on the types of customers that that you're targeting, obviously, but you can get a lot with surveys again, pending a couple of things. And then basically you would lean in with interviews and get to that extra level of depth. And then I would say the run version of that would be doing that in a continuous way. So you're constantly um, learning from customers at these critical moments in their relationship with you, you know, what was successful for them, what worked, what didn't work for them, and basically do that in an ongoing way where you've got your team basically set up to go back in and learn and then optimize what you're currently doing. So yeah, hopefully that answered the sort of crawl, walk, run version of it. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. And I know from talking to some product marketing leaders throughout the the course of this podcast, some of the companies that are in rarefied air, so to speak, you know, emulates some of what you just mentioned in run, but not many organizations mimic a lot of this. And so I think there's a whole lot of gold in there for everyone. Yeah. A lot of them aren't even crawling, unfortunately, (laughs) For sure, you know, and it's, it never ceases to amaze me that you could be investing that much, especially in product led companies where you're building out these really scalable, like programmatic incredible. What we can do is amazing, right? Programmatically. And so to not actually invest upfront in the customer research to inform all of that, I just like, it boggles my mind how few companies actually manage to get it done. And there's lots of reasons, but yeah. For sure. I'm curious about how you think about then taking these segments that you're learning from prioritizing some segments versus maybe other segments, and then actually operationalizing that. And I like starting to spin that feedback loop, so to speak. Yeah. So this is my personal favorite part of the (laughs) part of the work. 
because it's kind of where rubber starts to hit the road a little bit, which is nice. So what we do is once we've conducted our research, we organize it inside of, and this is not going to be new to anybody here, but inside of, you know, a voice of customer sort of document. And we can plot the learnings from our interviews and from our surveys into these voice of customer, basically documents where all the research is organized in basically the order in which the customer experienced them, right? From like describing the pain or previous solution to like, you know, what was the moment that you knew that our solution was going to solve your problem, right? The answer to that question, imagine where that would apply if we're thinking about the customer's experience sort of holistically. What can you do now that you weren't able to do before? Those types of questions really getting at the root of like value realization and continued value or like, what do you wish our product did that doesn't do today? Then we start to pull at some of the opportunity on the expansion and sort of growth side of things. So you can already imagine how this laid out is a customer journey. We think of them as customer experience maps, primarily because customer journey has just so many connotations associated with it. Generally that like the journey begins when somebody becomes a customer or when they hit our website, but we all know that the journey actually begins out with our customers experiencing the problem. And also a lot of customer journey maps don't go past acquisition very far. I mean, there's pirate metrics, but pirate metrics are pretty generic like buckets and they're not quite catered enough. I've got a lot of thoughts about like a lot of the frameworks that exist that are quite generic, but I digress. At the end of the day, what we'd like to think about it is like, as the holistic customer experience, it's that bird's eye view of like our customers out in the world, experiencing the problem that we solve all the way through to, you know, getting value within our product, reaching value realization, solving that customer job, reaching meaningful continued value through to like, how would they expand and grow, you know, with our product? So that entire gamut, basically figuring out what are the leaps of faith in our customer's relationship with us. You know, actually my, my sort of moment with this, my Eureka moment with this was when I was visiting the Airbnb headquarters years and years ago, this is prior to forget the funnel even being a thing. When I, I saw the Airbnb customer journey map on the wall and what struck me about it was all through the lens of the customer. It wasn't a life cycle with like MQLs and PQLs and SQLs. It was, you know, customers reaching this like you know, moment of value or aha or a magic moment, whatever you want to call it, right? It was all through their lens. And so I had this sort of moment of like, holy shit, that is how we should be thinking about and operationalizing our customer's experience. It shouldn't be about they signed up, they entered a credit card, or they started their trial, and then they paid us, and then they paid us like twice, and now they're a weekly active, and now they're a monthly active. And now upsell, which is very transactional, we prefer to think about it through, again, the lens of the customer, thus customer-led growth, right? So what were those moments of value? And we tend to use words like first value and value realization and continued value and value growth. And like, it's all about value to the customer. And so if we can take that voice of customer 
and basically plot out that customer's experience, then we end up with very clear milestones in that customer's relationship with us. In general, there's three phases. There's the sort of struggle and awareness phase where somebody's experiencing the problem. And then there's sort of this evaluation phase where they're trying your product for the first time and trying to figure out whether or not you're actually going to solve their problem. That goes through to value realization. And then there's the growth phase, which is really about continued value. We're a recurring revenue business model here. So continued value, wildly important, and then expanded value as well, which depending on the company could mean upsell, or it could mean referrals, or it could mean, you know, reviews and, or it could mean all kinds of things. I mean, SaaS gets really fun and interesting on the growth side of things. Unfortunately, we don't spend nearly enough time there in general, as an industry, we don't spend enough time. There is so much opportunity, but the struggle and evaluation phases is where we tend to lean into a lot because there's the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, and the most pain is there. So that's how we sort of operationalize the customer research as we identify those milestones. And then what we would do is identify how we would measure success. So how will we know we've done our job helping customers reach value. And so we identify KPIs at each of those milestones and each of the milestones sort of become a strategy in and of themselves. So if you think about first value, for example, so somebody signs up on your website, gets into your product, our job is helping them get to value very, very quickly. We can do that in a couple of ways. We can have a great product and a great product UI. We can use product in-app prompts. We can use email. And so that whole experience, if they don't reach first value, there's win back and re-engagement, you know, communication paths that we have. And so just that stage you could optimize that and have a massive impact on the business. And I've only talked about one stage and there's usually five, six, you know, seven of them, depending on how complex your customer is. For sure. And optimizing each and every one of those steps will provide, or should hopefully provide a stair function increase in yeah. your conversion rates or a lot of your key business metrics as well. Yeah. I mean, curious. So operationalizing this, doing this research, taking all of the learnings, putting in the work to maybe, you know, do these in-app prompts or send these emails or, or whatever the case may be for whatever is right for that particular organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, curious who you think should be the champion of uh-huh. customer-led growth internally within a company. Should it be maybe its own independent team? Should it be a part of an existing team? How should this team be? What should the makeup of this team be and who should it be comprised of? Yeah. So it's a great question. The easy answer If it's an org that has product marketing, the very easy answer, in my opinion, is product marketing because product marketing does sit at the center of all of this. And product marketing is strategic by nature. That is the the role. So I definitely think it's product marketing. Unfortunately, there's a lot of orgs that don't have product marketing or product marketing is owned by multiple people. So the answer does get a little bit more complicated. But one thing that I wanted to go back to for a second is the customer experience map that I just described with the KPIs. Those, like just having that tool, I'll say, exist within an org. Yes, the tool I think should be built by product marketing. If there's a product marketing function that can own it, I do think it should be owned by product marketing. However, imagine what that tool does for folks on the marketing team, for folks on the customer success team, for folks on the product team, for folks on the sales team, for all of those other, you know, all of those other cross-functional teams, they have a much clearer understanding of their role and what they do and how it impacts the customer's experience. So it's sort of this like, 
you know, it can shift how teams see themselves. It can shift how, and I'm not just talking about product marketing, I'm talking about, you know, a marketing team or a sales team or a CS team, how they think about how they measure success within their own teams. You know, their objectives, their quarterly objectives may want to be impacted by improving these KPIs. And so it should affect everybody. The, actually, the other thing that it does too, is it provides the team with a shared language for understanding, having a sort of nomenclature for how you refer to various stages of the customer experience, you know, the names of those milestones, who cares what you call them, right? As long as they're used. I always say like, I'm not precious about the names of any of this, just like shared understanding is what matters. And so defining those KPIs are really, really important. And it can do a ton for the teams to basically see themselves. So the answer to your question is, if there is a product marketing function, I definitely think this is something that product marketing should lead, but it is at the service of the entire organization. Senior leadership buy-in is critical product has to be involved, has to be a major driver, if not the primary stakeholder, depending on how product-led your company is. But I think anybody listening to this probably already has a clear idea. If, you know, if you have a product marketing title, you probably already know who is that stakeholder at your company that really needs to be on board with this and continue to champion this, either when you're not in the room, making sure that it is a priority for all the functional team leads to really get prioritized. It can be very wide in scope. One thing that I would say that generally helps is if you narrow the scope to begin with, get some wins. I mean, this is just best practice for a lot of types of projects, but because it's so big, it can help with like, you know what, let's focus on onboarding or, you know what, let's focus on our positioning and messaging, or, you know what, let's focus on figuring out what does value realization actually mean for our customers and sort of drill into for retention and addressing churn issues. If you can lean into specific areas with specific KPIs that roll into revenue, especially, then it can help a lot. So narrowing the scope and then expanding beyond and beyond. That's generally a good way to roll it out internally. I couldn't agree more. And I think a lot of product marketers search for meaning or how to maybe make the kind of gray area of measuring our department or mm -hmm. how we provide value to the organization a whole lot more clear. And I think you just provided more or less the perfect roadmap <laughs> to exactly doing that. Definitely read the book for the full roadmap, but hopefully, you know, listening to this provides some initial insight as well. Yeah. Gia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I want to ask one more quick question that I ask pretty much everyone coming on. Curious if there's any kind of piece of insight that you learned from maybe a mentor or a book that you've read or just anything you've learned throughout your career that's really stuck with you and served you well throughout your career. Oh boy. Oh, um, Honestly, it's probably sounding pretty repetitive at this point, but one thing that definitely has helped me a lot as you get pulled into the day-to-day, -day, like the weeds, like the thick of it in projects, it can get really, really complicated, especially with, you know, working with cross-functional teams and multiple tools and multiple stakeholders it can be very, very hard to keep your sort of like see the forest for the trees. And generally what I even still to this day need to remind myself of is like, what is best for the customer? It blows my mind how centering just that can be because everybody wants that. All of your team members, all of your colleagues, they everybody wants the same thing. We all want to provide value. We all know that customers are at the end of the day, the most important stakeholders ultimately, but it can be really, really 
easy to lose sight of this as you're caught in the like planning and the thick of actually executing on stuff. So that has always been sort of a helpful recentering exercise. I'm such a broken record with the book recommendations, but I always recommend April Dunford's obviously awesome just as a starting point for like, okay, shit, my company's got a positioning issue or messaging issue. Reading that book and then reading like Forget the Funnel would be probably the best thing to do. It will give you a straight line because it is a very sort of through line. If you can understand the fundamentals of positioning, which I know product marketers do, but it's a helpful framework. And then you can apply customer research to it and actually operationalize it with a customer experience map. You can get very far. I'm just going to name off like the standard fair books here, but that's what comes to mind for me. This was a trick question. I should have thought that one through. <laughs> totally fine. Honestly, we want it to come from the heart. And, and so <laughs> staying connected to the customer, keeping the customer at the center of everything you do is- When in doubt, when in doubt, go back to that. Like, it's yeah. so easy to get caught up in the mechanics and the tactics and everything else that you're doing to, yeah. of course. And that's actually something else that I will add to is like a caution of like what worked for you at your last job. It doesn't apply here, like if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail for product marketing in particular, that is like, you will sink if that is your tool. And there are so many shiny object, a shiny object syndrome is so real. There are so many growth tactics. You know, you could read five blog posts and come out with like 50 ideas of like, Oh shit, we should try this. We should try this. Everybody ends up with a ton of ideas. And in that situation, what is best for our best customer will help recenter you and prioritize. So I would say like, do that customer research, get that intimate and deep understanding of customers, and then go to all those tools and leverage the hell out of them. But that's another thing that I see happen a ton is we fall prey to what either we did in our, in previous roles or what we're seeing other people do that might not apply. It might not be relevant in your situation. It's your job to figure out whether or not it is. Couldn't agree more. It's a little bit of that shiny object syndrome of wanting that success and probably wanting to shortcut it to some degree at least. Yes. But well, Gia, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed this conversation. I personally learned a ton. I am looking forward to reading the full book and I encourage everyone to check it out as well. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. This show is produced by ShareRoot, the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers to your questions and learn from leaders at the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Check out sharebird.com.